you're just a puppy yet. <laughs> that was the exact age I came here to Portland. <laughs> well, we're glad to have you if you continue to behave. Well, good to see everybody this morning. I think in this particular message, which I'll explain in moments, I have the time to tell this story. Uh, I told it to somebody the other day, and they said, chills just ran up my spine. So I want to share it with you. Stacy is my witness that this guy called. Uh, he was a listener, radio listener from Pittsburgh, and said, Pastor Andrews, I remember you telling this story on radio. And then he reminded me of what it was, the state of the black period as much as possible. This was 1969, the very height of the black power movement, which was pretty intense. And I was over at West Virginia State College. Long backstory, teaching a Bible study in the great big entryway to this building. And I was catching it about every night. And I was over there seated against the wall. Several black guys, I don't remember how many, because of the atmosphere of that day, today is kind of like it. They were, they approached me with hostile intent. And they say, hey, preacher, said, you got any kids? And I said, uh, I said, yeah. What are the boys or girls? I said, well, they're two girls. And they said, well, what would happen if those girls came in and they walked in with some big black dude and said they were one to marry him? I said, well, I'll tell you exactly what I would tell them. I said, I would tell them about all the pressures on marriages in every generation. Rich, rich guy marries a rich girl or vice versa. Black or white or, or you name it. I said, I would urge her to be careful of any pressures that would be too many on the marriage. Think carefully before you jump. But I say, if the alternatives were this, if it was a, if it was a big white dude, that didn't love Jesus Christ, I would tell her not to marry. As a big black dude that loved Jesus Christ, I'd say marry him. And he said, I was there. I was at West Virginia State College there. Now he's in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. He said that night when I heard that, I said, hey, he's real. And that shut him down. There was no more fuss, no more argument after that. By the way, you hear all these stories? We had a man from this church who went back to the church I first pastored out of seminary. He would hear all these stories, and he, he had to go to Pennsylvania on the way to see his son who was in med school. He said, I'm just going to, my wife and I are just going to drive through that famous metropolis of Polka, West Virginia, and see if all those stories are true. <laughs> he actually did. He went back there and he had, he investigated us. He said they were true. <laughs> so uh, never 
give you any froth. Anyway, Timmy, see you down there. Timmy, good to see you. Now, is that? No, that's not Timmy. I'm sorry. (laughs) That's not true. (laughs) I had the wrong idea here. Wrong idea. Well, I get it wrong once in a while. Well, just great to see everybody. Now, for those of you, and I've already met a couple of persons who uh, came here this morning just to check the church out. I told them they could check you out. I didn't know about some of you. But they could come and check the church out, but I told them what our brand was, that we teach the Bible here. It's not called Lake Bible Church for nothing. However, so happens this particular Sunday, it's going to be very biblical. But this particular Sunday, we are opening our usual February missions emphasis. Preparing for Jesus is our theme. I'm going to be delivering the opening message then I will come bookend at the last message, and David and John are going to have the two messages in between. They have something in talking with them that is not always talked about, and I think it ought to be talked about in connection with the theme, preparing, preparing for Jesus. Today I'm going to be talking about preparing for Jesus and attuning our priorities. Let's go to Matthew chapter 6. Actually, the whole text is important. Let me just read it because I'll have to read the first part of it, 19 and following. I don't know whether this will be up there. I didn't get the guys totally clued in. Jesus says in this discourse, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. That's where moth and rust destroy your treasures. That's where thieves break in and they they steal I'm admonishing you to lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moss nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. And then he lays down a spiritual law. We'll come back to it. And where your treasure is, there will be your heart also. Very, very true. The lamp of the body is the eye. Therefore, if your eye is clear, pure, the whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad on the wrong things, about the wrong things, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, wow, how great is that darkness. Here's another spiritual law. No one, no one here, there, or anywhere can serve two masters can't happen for either he or she will hate the one and love the other or he will hold to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Wealth, you could translate that the world also, but mammon means wealth or riches. For this reason I say to you, Jesus says to everyone here who knows him, Do not be anxious. Do not be all in a stir for your life. Many are. As to what you shall eat or what you shall drink. In other words, the necessities of life. Nor for your body what you shall put on. Is not life more than food in your body, more than clothing? For all the stuff that is out there, 
Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them without the little birds ever asking. Are not you worth much more than birds? Don't tell Pete of that. They don't get it. Okay. Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single cubit to his lifespan? You can worry, you can sweat, you can watch TV and all these programs tell you how you can live pain-free. They're almost getting to the point, death-free. It's not going to happen. You're going to die. You're dying as you're sitting there. Happy thought. (laughs) You're not going to work it out so you can expand your life by one minute. Oh, somebody says yes. Oh. Why are you anxious about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil. They don't spin. Yet I say to you that Solomon in all his glory did not clothe himself like one of these. But if God arrays the grass of the field which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, that's the way it is, isn't it? Will he not much more do so for you, O man, O people of little faith? Do not be anxious then as he comes back to home base. What are we going to eat? Don't do that. That's a waste of time. Or what are we going to drink? Mom, how are we going to clothe these kids? For all these things the Gentiles translate pagans, eagerly seek. That's what they're all about. (laughs) Panning like dogs to get it, whatever it is. For your heavenly Father, hey, he knows what you need. Here's our verse, verses. But seek first, the seek first his kingdom, the kingdom of God, and seek his righteousness. And all these things that you need, not that you want, all these things that you need, he will add to you. Do not therefore be anxious for tomorrow, for tomorrow will take care of itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. We're talking about preparing for Jesus. First business, attuning our priorities. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. I'm going to translate that another way. It's the spirit of the text. Seek first the rule of God, the kingdom of God, the sovereignty of God over your life and his will. Seek that first. Push everything else aside as necessary. Preparing for Jesus, translated in more familiar terms, or at least to me, means following Jesus wherever he leads, until he comes or until we go to him. It means setting our house, setting our house in order and the expectation that one way or another, we're going out to meet him or he's coming for us. In view of that, We should, in this project of preparing for Jesus, be moving all the furniture around so that we will meet him with joy and not with shame. Now, our subject, preparing for Jesus, is a broad one. Therefore, I must necessarily abbreviate what we have to say and limit our coverage to this subject 
to a few of the most pressing urgencies. First of all, in preparing for Jesus, we must know God. That's business number one. Two, we must know ourselves. I say this a lot if you're around me a lot. Most of you are probably glad you're not. We must know ourselves. So many people get off track because they simply don't know number one. Know God and know ourselves and welcome any news that tells us about ourselves. And three, we must, and that's what we're talking about today, have our priorities straight as far as Jesus is concerned. We'll never get where he wants us to be if we don't know our priorities, his priorities, and order our lives accordingly. This all seems so simple to me because I've been at it a long time. But sometimes we've just got to remember the old things. As followers of Jesus, you and I do not have the right to call our own shots. We do not have the right. I said we do not have the right to own our own priorities, to order them. We're here to follow his mandate. This is not rocket science. It's not a brain teaser. No believer in the Lord Jesus Christ is ever in the position of saying, ever should be, but I've heard it a thousand times. Well, I tell you, Pastor, what I'm doing, I don't often say it to me, but I'm just trying to find the will of God for my life like it is some great mystery. It could be stated in many ways, but here it is, Matthew six thirty-three. It's abundantly clear what our priorities are in his service. Seek you first. Your first business when you wake up in the morning, your first business in preparing to wake up the next day is to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Follow those priorities. Everything else will fall in line in time. I know there are things. This is not idealism. This is spiritual reality. As your pastor, I know very well that there are things that challenge us. There are things that we seek God's will for. What would the Lord have me do in X situation? What would he have me do in Y situation? What would he have me do? I know we go through those. I've been through those. But I'm telling you, you get the first priority straight and the rest of them will fall in line. They will. You resolve, you determine, I'll come back to that thought at the end of the message, that what I'm going to do, by the grace of God, God helping me, I'm going from this point on to seek first the kingdom, the rulership or the sovereignty of God, the rule of God over my life. I'm going to do that no matter what. And anything else that you're all tense about, in its time, it'll fall in place. Should I live here or should I live there? Should I move from this place, go to that place? Should I take this job or take that job? Should we have another child or not have another child? On and on it goes. 
Well, those are all good and interesting questions. And they will fall in line as long as your first priority is to seek first, primarily, the kingdom of God and seek his righteousness in all your paths. They'll all come together. Folks, I've lived long enough to have been there many times. You're not going to hear them. But story after story of the way God works in the And it worked the same way in your life. And some of you could get up here with your own. Seek first his righteousness and everything else will fall into line. Now, I want to share with you next and primarily in the, in this message, what deflects us. You may or may not have thought of them from following those priorities more often than not. Not all of these things I'm going to mention are absolutely discreet. Some of these overlap a bit, but they're discreet enough to talk about them separately. First is the obvious. We sometimes get off track by the tug of daily demands. We all have those. That equals distraction. In athletics, and I often think in athletic terms, as you know, for obvious reasons, We take our eyes off the ball and we get hit in the face. Coaches call it losing focus. Focus, guys, focus. You'll hear a basketball coach on the sideline. Focus. That's what Jesus is telling us. Focus. We get distracted by daily demands. In the world, in this world in which we live, you and I must learn to say, hey, Your urgencies are not my urgencies. We must first of all be what God has called you and I to be. Then do what he's called us to do and go where he's called us to go. After that, everything else is negotiable unless it's sin. Now listen. I said this is not spiritual idealism. Sometimes you hear somebody talking in idealistic terms and you... Wave it off because, you see, that's a standard nobody can live up to, including him. You're right. Now, there is, folks, a fine balance between enjoying this world that God has created and sharing it with our families, our friends, and going off and getting so immersed in the good things that we lose our focus on the main things. We can enjoy this world that God has created. We can give him thanks for it. Food and sunshine, even rain, and things like that. We can enjoy the beauties of nature and the bounty of nature. We can enjoy all that. We can go hunting. We can go fishing, as some of you do. We can enjoy our cars, and we can enjoy our homes, all of that. There's nothing inherently wrong with any of that. It becomes wrong when it begins to dominate, when it starts to defocus us, and we're so much about those things that we forget what we're really about, seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That's it. Naturally, We must all, including your pastor, we must tip our hat 
to the routine duties of everyday life. That includes your jobs and your social relationships. You got jobs, you got to keep up with them, you've got to do them well. And that spells time and to a certain degree some focus. But there comes a point when our priorities as believers can be shunted aside in favor of muck, muck, M-U-C-K, muckraking. I'm going to tell you a story about that, muckraking. I don't know how many of you have ever read, I mean, don't be embarrassed if you haven't. How many of you have ever read John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress? Good, a whole lot of you. Good for you. If you've never had to be good to order it and read it, on my copy, which is really old, there are pictures, sometimes whole-page pictures, and one of them is called one of Bunyan's characters, the muckraker. Now, I'm going to try to, in my own feeble way, illustrate the muckraker. Is this going to scream when I pick it up? So much not. This is a rake. Use your imagination. It's a rake. Now, and the picture wasn't made by Bunyan, but an artist. Here's a character in the Christian life called the muckraker. I've never forgotten this picture. And here's this guy. He's standing knee-deep in the muck. That's easy to imagine here in Oregon. In the muck. And he's got this rake. And he's raking in the muck. That's life. That's life. Just raking the muck. Slop, 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 slop. The tragedy of the muckraker is that right above his head, if the dumb idiot would just look up, his head would go right into a resplendent crown. But he never looks up, never seeks first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness. Always the goodies here on earth. Always sucking the orange to try to get everything out of the muck he can possibly get out. That's the way most people live their lives. Muckraking, muckraking, muckraking. It's Ma and Paul, it's the kids, it's the house, it's the money, it's the stocks, it's the bonds, it's the camper, it's the boat, it's all of these other things that people go ape about. Their lives are essentially wasted for Christ because they spend so much of it raking the muck. These other things are not necessarily wrong, but they're out of place. They are defocused, and it's sad. Sometimes I've had to remind myself of those things. I've always said there's some things good about getting older. (laughs) I'm getting older. But there really are. I just get to the point where I look around and I see all the stuff that people are running around just fussing over using all their time, using all their energy, using all their money, just fussing over the things of this world. When you get begin to get older, you begin to see how useless that is, just how utterly useless. 
It's here today. It's gone tomorrow. You know, one of the good things of the many about my little wife over there, one of the good things is that when it comes to these holidays, if they come from you, that's okay. If they come from me, don't bring her flowers. Because flowers just don't bloom but for a day. Give her something that lasts. I could take her out and spend $200 on a meal for her. She might love the meal, but she'd be sick afterward, not of the food, but because the food goes here and comes out here. <laughs> it doesn't last. So that's the attitude we need to take toward life. What lasts? What endures? What becomes treasure in heaven? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Now, here's another that deflects, distracts, and diverts us from the project of preparing for Jesus. The deadening influence of acculturation. What you say? It's a big, long, polysyllabic word. You choke on it, but it has a very simple meaning. Simple idea. Here's the problem. As we walk along in life, stuff sticks. Again, a little illustration. Here's the earth. Here's the ground. I've got on, not here, new and shiny shoes. So I go walking, strolling down through life. That's nice out here. Strolling down through life. Ah, beautiful sunshine. Look at the trees. Look at the birds. Look at the flower. Hi, Joe. Hi, Mary. How are you getting on? So good to see you. Strolling, strolling, strolling. What's happening? I'm kicking up all this dust on my shoes. It's called acculturation. Stuff sticks. That's inevitable with me and with you and everybody, but we got to watch that. So I'm talking now about the problem of acculturation being a diversion from preparing for Jesus and attuning our priorities. It throws us off the scent of our rightful pursuits. Acculturation happens when we start to look, ah, am I getting acculturated? Every one of us in this room, including yours truly, is to some extent acculturated. We got to be careful. It happens when we start to look more like a creature of the culture around us than a creature of the kingdom of God above us. Acculturation is when more moral separation from the world is uncomfortable to us rather than something desirable for us. We don't like very much to be different, do we? How many times I've heard this? I don't mean this is a sin, it's just an illustration. What am I going to wear today? Ossie says. I say, well, honey, what about that? Any of you men ever heard this? Well, they're not wearing that anymore. It's acculturation. Who gives a rip? Have you ever seen they? I, someday I want to meet they, whoever they are. They call, it's the shot callers. And it, it looks good to me. Wear it. In Oregon, you can wear anything. I see, I see guys out there in the streets, gals too. Here they are. They're certainly not acculturated in this way. They go out, 
they've got on shorts of all things. It's 13 degrees. <laughs> Weird stuff like that. Well, at least they're not afraid to be different. We're so afraid to be different. We're acculturated. We've got, it's called peer pressure, isn't it? So we've got to do it their way rather than our way. We're becoming acculturated when we're afraid to be different. We, uh, just a little thing. Sunday morning, I usually have on something that I don't have during the week. And I go in. The other day I went into McDonald's, which these days is El Primo for me. I went into McDonald's. The guy was there waiting on said, you're all dressed up. I stood out because nobody else in McDonald's in this week or last or in the last year came in there in a suit. So it looked weird. We're a little afraid to be different. So I didn't mind. Gave me a chance to tell him that I was a pastor. (laughs) You're a what? Blow him back a little. Okay. You understand now what I mean by acculturation. We get so immersed in the habits attracted to the worthless pursuits of society about us that we begin to absorb its values. So many stories. I remember back in that famous town of Polka, West Virginia, I told you about. This will date me, and it'll certainly date so because you won't have a clue what I'm talking about. I looked at my neighbor across the street. I was just up at the parsonage just visiting. And I looked out and I saw, she's long dead, don't worry. I saw a neighbor, nice gal. She was kind of stylish, even in polka, some people were stylish. She was kind of stylish. What did she have? Oh, I say, come here, look at this. Look across the street. And there went Jeannie Lloyd. And she had on these weird clothes, bell-bottom jeans, Anybody remember those things? Yeah, some of you do. Bell-bottom jeans. I looked at them. I was absolutely aghast. Why would anybody come out? Of, they were just starting to come out. And she was ahead of Hollywood. I was just starting to come out. And I thought, surely not. Surely not. I could never have believed that anybody would wear those dumb-looking things. (laughs) And five years later, guess who was wearing bell-bottom jeans? (laughs) You're looking at him. (laughs) Well, we're talking here about acculturation, but we're just talking about fashions. But we're not talking about sin. We get acculturated when we start absorbing the values into our spirit. And we're driven by the concerns and the passions of the world rather than Christ. We also call acculturation conformity or assimilation exactly what God has called his people to resist in the moral, ethical, and value realm of of life. We've got to get to the point where we don't mind being different. Did you hear me? We don't mind being different when it's important to be different. One of the things I appreciate about my grandson is a pastor down at Roseburg. He's just a young puppy. But 
always loved people, always that kind of thing, still does. Uh, people are a problem. <laughs> Just kidding you. <laughs> he loves them. But one thing about that guy, he's not afraid to be different. And he's stubborn when it's important to be different. He's stubborn about it. We got to be that way for Christ's sake. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And in terms of morals, in terms of ethics, in terms of attitudes, we must not be ashamed to be different like teenagers who are under the threat of peer pressure. Romans chapter 12, verse 2 tells us this. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Now, I can't push a button in myself. You can't in you and be transformed. But I'll tell you how to not be conformed and become transformed. It takes resolution. When you say, I will not be conformed to my neighbors and everybody else. I will not do it. Let me talk now about the rod of prosperity. That's another problem. We have God's warning in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 11 and following. If I can ever get back to Deuteronomy chapter 8, I've almost arrived. Listen to this, what God told Israel. And they fell right into the trap, the rod of prosperity. And many of us do too. Listen, I'm breaking into the chapter, the middle of it. Verse 10, when you have eaten and are satisfied, you shall bless, praise the Lord your God for the good land he's given you. Don't forget God, Moses said. Beware lest you forget the Lord by not keeping his commandments and his ordinances and his statutes, which I'm commanding you this day, lest when you've gotten all fat, sassy, and happy, when you've eaten or satisfied, you built good houses. You Now you have two houses. Now you have three, nine cars and a boat. Unless you've done all that, you live in them. And when your herds and your flocks, stocks and bonds multiply, your silver and gold multiply, all that you have multiplied, then your heart becomes proud and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Do not forget me. Seek you first, wherever you are, whatever condition you're under. Remember me. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things that you have need of will be added to you. The rod of prosperity. All of us here, I say all of us. I can't speak for everybody in this congregation this morning. But most of us here know we're not millionaires. They're almost nothing these days. Some of you are millionaires because you just happened to be in a million-dollar home. Or maybe a multi-million-dollar home. I got a home for $160,000 1987. You know it's not worth that now, don't you? But you live, you live well compared to most people. Well, it's so easy when you get flush to forget God. 
so easy. Sometimes we have to be reminded by circumstances that we forgot. So be careful. Be careful. Ease and prosperity tend to make the non-vigilant forgetful of God and less careful about his will, about seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Modern church history, if not ancient church history, shows that prosperity in the softer and the easier and the easier life tends to be more an enemy, an enemy of the spiritual life than persecution. Many of you probably knew that, but in case you don't, the people most at risk are not people in Muslim lands. Did you know that? It's us. Because we're fat, we're sassy, we're independent, we're proud, and we live relatively easy. And that eats the guts out of Christian virtue. It has the effect of corrupting the ranks. The vices and the values of the world system dilute our witness and our influence for Christ when we get fat. Prosperity has a way of fertilizing the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. It has a way, prosperity, ease of life, of nourishing worldliness and friendship with the world. Ease and excessive pleasure and prosperity has a way of misplacing the desires of the heart. Jesus says in the same context we read it earlier, another law, spiritual law. Where your treasure is, I ask you, where is your treasure? How do I know what my treasure is? Hey, I got a lot of them. I got my grandkids. I got my kids. I got my house. I got my bank account. I don't know where my treasure is. I can tell you where your treasure is. What is the one thing in this life or two things that you just would not give up? Your life would be ended. Your life would be wasted. It's all over for you if you lost those things. Would it be Christ? Or would it be something else? Whatever that is, that is your treasure. Wherever your heart is, that's your treasure. And you know what that treasure is? It has another spelling, a four-letter word. I-D-O-L. Idol. The thing that's most important to you and your scale of values, if it's not Christ, it's an idol. And there's no such thing as a Christian idolater. What do you mean, Pastor? I'm a member of the church. <laughs> I've been duly baptized. I'm all this. I go to prayer meetings. If you worship and honor and love something, I don't care, or someone, more than you love Christ, you are, despite being in these seats, you are an idolater. We're all at risk. We're all, including your pastor. So we cannot love God and have another master, whether it's money or pleasure, power or status or whatever. Jesus said back in verse 24, one or the other will be cheated or resented. Our first love must be God or it will be an idol. 
So we need to stick to our priorities. And we must be prepared to make mid-course adjustments to make it happen. Spirit of God will see that in time we get it tuned up. This is the starting point for preparing for Jesus. Now let me conclude. I call upon all of us, including myself. None of us are unaffected by these things. To be affected and to be dominated are two different things. You and I must resolve daily, weekly, monthly to move the ball downfield toward our priorities. We must move it downfield. Let me make an important distinction here. Most of you in this room, so far as I know, before God, you're honest to goodness believers. You know Jesus Christ. You want to walk with him. You want to be his disciple. You want to seek first the kingdom of heaven. You desire that. That's not enough. What do you mean, Pastor? It's not enough. Well, a 17th, an 18th century preacher, very brilliant, by the name of William Law, taught me that years ago. I wasn't there. But he wrote a book, A Serious Call to a Devout and Holy Life. And he made a distinction, which I've never forgotten. And it's one... I wish I could put it up here. I have a picture of my granddaughter, Ashley. Not great-granddaughter, but granddaughter. It was taken somewhere. She was, as a little thing, just a little thing, she was in gymnastics. She became very good. And there were a bunch of little kids lined up behind her, waiting to do whatever gymnastics deal they were doing and her great-grandfather looked at that picture and said oh would you look at that picture on her face was determination like you would rarely see I mean she was determined the kids about her looked like kids just mom and dad brought pay the money and the kids just, oh, okay. she was determined to win Then when I read William Law, it all hit me. He said, most of us have desires to be what we ought to be, do what we ought to do, go where we ought to go. It's like trying to lose weight. We desire to drop 50 pounds. (laughs) But we don't sometimes get very far for lack of one thing. We do not determine to. We do not intend to. That makes the difference. When it comes to spiritual victory, we've got to quit just lamely desiring to. And before God, asking the greatest of God to. The will to intend to. We've got to intend to. Prepare for Jesus to attune our priorities to his. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. A lot of good things in life. God's put them here for a gift. We can enjoy them. We don't have to become ascetics. We don't have to go to the no fun world. Not saying that. We've got to get our priorities in order. So first things first. Ossie's heard that a thousand times from me. 
you know, we have it all right, the two of us. I'm kidding you. You don't think I'm being serious. But one of the things we have a problem with, I mean, we maybe have a problem with two things. But one of the things we have a problem with is she wears her hearing aids. Well, she's got so much. Women do so many things to do in the morning before they can get out of the house. Meanwhile, I'm down in the car saying, come on, come on, come on. Well, she gets under pressure from me wanting to get out of the house and get over here at the church. On and on it goes. And so we get out of the house and we get halfway to the church. Oh, Jimmy, she knows this is almost a death sentence. Oh, Jimmy, I forgot my hearing aids. Oh, see, how in the world could you forget those? Because she won't be able to hear a thing all day. If she has them, she may be able to hear two things all day. And it goes on and on. Honey, how many times have I told you? First things first. I don't care whether you get that stuff on your face or not. First things first. Get the hearing aids in. That's only happened 135 times. So nearly every day as we come out of the house, I say, first things first. Also, you have the hearing aids. So it's getting better. She's still alive. (laughs) You know it's getting better. Well, the Lord God says to us, first things first. Everything else is secondary. Let's remember that. And let's pray to God that he'll give us the determination, the intention to make it happen by the grace of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for revealing to us so clearly what your will is, what it means to prepare for Jesus. First of all, is to attune our priorities to your spirit and your word. Help us to get that straight and make first things the first things. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.